From the Vaults, audio from Edmonton's past. This recording consists of an interview of Stan McMillan conducted by Bruce Ibsen on November 20th, 1985. This material was recorded on a 5-inch open reel tape and was digitized by an archivist on March 26th, 2021. Today our interview is with uh, former Bush pilot, Mr. Stan McMillan. Uh, perhaps we could have you begin by having you tell us where and when you were born. I was born in uh, Dryden, Ontario, that's the western part of Ontario, uh, in 1904, on October the 3rd, and uh, lived there for about a, a year and a half, and then uh, moved east to Guelph, Ontario, for a short time, and then to Edmonton for a long time. <laughs> How many were there in your family? Just my twin sister and myself, and mother and father. What did your father do for a living? My father was uh, uh, the professional engineer at the University of Alberta, uh, in charge of the of their steam uh, and uh, steam plant there. So he came out here when they uh, started to build the university out here, is that? Uh, fairly close. Uh, he worked uh, in a the Rocky Mountain, at least the Mountain Park uh, coal mines to begin with, and, uh, and then with the uh, Galt mines in Lethbridge for some eight years, and then back here to Edmonton, where we uh, stayed uh, from then on. Where did you go to school in Edmonton? I went to Queen Alley. Early grades uh, and then up to uh, to Strathcona High School. And, uh, my high school, uh, and then to Alberta University for a couple of, for two years in engineering. So you grew up in the South Side then. Yes. Yeah. When was the uh, when was the first time you ever saw an airplane? Oh, it was. Uh, uh, in Edmonton uh, at the fair and I believe it, it was uh, probably Walkway and and, uh, and his uh, uh, circus performing flights and, uh, and then I met my cousin uh, Jack Caldwell who landed a, a flying boat Vickers, uh, Vimy, uh, Vickers Viking flying boat on the river just above the bridge, the high-level bridge. And our home was just uh, on top of the hill, just uh, about directly south of where he landed. So he came up and uh, paid us a visit, and I got quite uh, taken with his uh, travels in the, uh, in the north. Uh, he had made a, a trip with the Vickers Viking amphibian flying boat up to uh, the territories and east of Fort Smith looking for gold for a mining syndicate. And his experiences uh, got me uh, taken with the idea of flying. Were you, uh, did you ever want to be anything else but a pilot after that time? Or was that pilot just sold? I think that 
sense that they might have settled my ideas on what I was going to be. I was at the university and, and uh, belonged to the uh, officer's training corps, which uh, uh, in turn they uh, recommended one or two from uh, the mining, or at least from the engineering department, to take a course down to Camp Borden with the Canadian Air Force. This to take three, three summers or three uh, holidays uh, during the, the three summers, and uh, we uh, that was uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, chosen for one of the the uh, one of the the students to go down take a course in flying with the Air Force. So you got to, that was the first time you actually flew a plane was when right. you went down there? Yes, that was it. Uh, uh, the, in the third summer, in 1927, uh, 28, uh, the summer of 27, I had uh, soloed and, and uh, uh, got my wings. and. And then uh, I had broken my uh, leg on a parachute jump, on the training parachute jump, so uh, I, just at the end of, the, of, our, uh, of our summer course, and uh, we had, I, I couldn't go back to the university at that time because I, they were still uh, all, uh, changing the uh, uh, setting on my uh, on the broken leg so they offered me a, a non-permanent commission in the Air Force and uh, I stayed on with them you and, broke <laughs> uh, instead of going back to university did you uh, when you first flew uh, in an airplane was it as satisfying as you thought it would be did you know oh, that this was for you? Oh yes, yeah. This this was uh, the life for me, all right. What type of plane was that? They were uh, Avro uh, Clergy 504K, which is a rotary engine, Clergy rotary engine. That is the prop propeller goes around with the engine, and uh, uh, for the first two years we were down there, we used the. Clergier, the 504K, and then we got uh, onto the radial engine, which was uh, uh, where the propeller went around uh, and the, uh, the engine, uh, the cylinders were stationary. This was quite an improvement, and uh, they were far more reliable, too. So how long did you stay in the uh, in the uh, flying corps? Uh, until the end of 1928, and it was during 1928 that, that I was up at uh, uh, flying into Fort Churchill. Uh, they were building the railway into Churchill, and also the uh, grain storage uh, and the, uh, the wharf and that for the. Uh, uh, the 
terminal, the, the terminals there. And uh, I was loaned to the Department of uh, Harbors and Marine, and uh, we had uh, a job of flying from the end of steel uh, to the harbor, uh, supplies, mail, uh, dynamite, uh, everything. Uh, and we also had uh, quite a bit of flying to do out over the sea to uh, just before the, the uh, ship uh, ship started to uh, enter the Hudson Bay, we had to uh, cruise out to 40 or 50 miles to check the uh, uh, the route for ice uh, and for you know icebergs and for ice. So I got a fair amount of, uh, of northern experience there in a, in a fairly short time. Was it at this time that you uh, you were telling me before about the uh, trip you made down uh, to Chicago and? Uh, New York was it around this time? Oh, you did that. That, was that? that was in 1929 in uh, in February, March, uh, March I think of uh, 29. That time I was with the Dominion Explorers, a mining company that uh, uh, that decided to use airplanes and looking for uh, mining or mineral. Uh, locations in the uh, barren lands for, by using airplanes and um, it was on one of these trips that I, that I flew up to, uh, from Churchill North to uh, Baker Lake and, and we were going to uh, you go over the same route that uh, our president uh, Colonel McAlpin had made in the summer, the previous summer, with Punch Dickens uh, over, and over using pontoons. And we were going to try it in the winter. And uh, uh, it didn't work out too good because the, uh, the, every, the country is just white and, uh, and very hard to distinguish lake from land. And uh, we we gave it a, a go, but uh, we got about half, roughly halfway, and with the cast cash we were going to put out, we decided, decided to land. And uh, and after uh, two airplanes were involved in this, uh, after we got down, we uh, we talked it over, and uh, we weren't very sure of our location, and but we were quite sure that we'd never be able to find the cash if we left it there. So we put it back in the airplane and uh, put the, the fuel of the tanks into our airplane tanks and, and headed back for Baker Lake, which we uh, just got there before dark. And uh, uh, it, uh, and there's a whole land, the landing uh, areas in that were, that we had to use were so rough that it uh, damaged the undercarriage and uh, we were forced to make uh, temporary repairs and, and uh, had to take uh, one of the airplanes back to uh, the factory for uh, some uh, 
fairly intensive uh, repairs on the uh, structure. You were mentioning uh, going through Chicago. Well, I, believe, I believe at that time we were probably the first uh, uh, Canadian airplanes to go down uh, from south from Winnipeg to uh, uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and then on through to uh, uh, Chicago and to New York and to the Air Fairchild factory on Long Island. It was quite a trip because, uh, as I say, the the, the uh, there were very few aids and also they uh, not much uh, in the line of immigration and uh, and customs uh, procedures and and forms and that sort of thing we were held up at, at st paul for a couple of days there and they because they had no uh, uh, aircraft aviation forms to, for a, a, an aircraft entering from a foreign country. So they finally decided to use the, the marine form, which I had to sign umpteen forms there the, with, that I wouldn't pick up any cattle, horse, or sheep between this port and that port until <laughs> I got to to uh, uh, Amityville and on Long Island. Uh, we, it, it was quite a, a joke there with the uh, Customs and immigration people are with them. And it, every time I went through there and, and other later years, I've gone through several times, uh, these uh, call the customs, uh, immigration people up in the customs. And they'd remember this uh, occasion of me coming in there, and as a result, I was, uh, they treated me royally. <laughs> so you had to. Uh and I, I would imagine it was similar when you were flying uh, in the north. You had to fly. Did you fly by landmarks and, and uh, well, the, uh, our navigation aids in the, in the north when I went in there first were uh, very few and, and skimpy. Uh, they most of the shorelines uh, of the uh, coastal lines were just in the north were just dotted in, and they were just approximate. And, and as a rule, bore no resemblance to the actual, <laughs> actually what the, the shoreline was. Uh, but uh, we used uh, judgment in this way that we would pick a day that was pretty clear and get up fair height, and on the route we would uh, sketch in. Uh, Particular features that were uh, would stand out like odd-shaped lakes and and uh, 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 ridges of, uh, of sand uh, and eskers and that that show up and they they show up in the winter and summer actually so uh, these sort of things and we'd uh, sketch them and pass them on to uh, the other pilots that were following or uh, that were likely to come in there. And, that's the way it got around until the maps uh, came out. That's amazing. <laughs> um, later on in that year, in 1929, uh, you were still with uh, with the McAlpine uh, group. Yeah. You were involved in Canada's first aerial search, but you weren't a searcher. You were the object of the search. That's right. Um, maybe 
you've mentioned briefly what uh, the object of the uh, McAlpine survey group was. Perhaps you could tell us uh, how you came about to, to uh, get in that the predicament that you ended up in. Mm. Well, Colonel McAlpine uh, <coughs> uh, wanted to make this survey trip in the late fall and uh, we started out from Winnipeg and went up through uh, uh, northern Manitoba up to uh, Churchill and at Churchill uh, well, the idea of this trip was to inspect some of the bases that we had uh, for uh, basing airplanes and prospectors and equipment and that to do sur survey work or mining survey work uh, using each base as a, uh, as a place to start out from and, uh, and come home to there. And, uh, anyway, the, we had a base about uh, 300 miles north of uh, Churchill, a place called Tavani, and uh, that was our first stop to see. And Dominion Explorers had a, a ship en route with uh, supplies that were going to come in that summer there, that late, late in the summer, and uh, it caught on fire and, uh, and exploded and sank near uh, oh about. 40 miles or 50 miles from Churchill and uh, they uh, we were waiting at Churchill for a, a day for, for them to come in and uh, while we were waiting there the uh, one aircraft that was uh, accompanying us uh, belonging to Western Canada Airways uh, flown by uh, Tommy Thompson uh, it broke loose at night and, and uh, sank uh, going out the harbor out to sea and uh, the next morning uh, I uh, went out to look for it and found a uh, survey ship out there that had uh, got a line on the, th on the uh, aircraft it was sunk down to the wings and uh, instead of trying to tow it back into the harbor they were a few miles out maybe six eight miles they uh, decided to try and get it on board and the wings were in the way so they chopped them off with an axe with wooden, uh, wooden wings and they continued on their work out there and when they finally came back into harbor that uh, due to everything being soaked in salt water and that it was in a, uh, an awful mess it was right off so with the uh, uh, cameras and everything else they had on board, that disappeared. Uh, then uh, there was a delay of a week uh, getting an airplane up there to replace it. Uh, I continued on with the colonel uh, up to uh, our base at uh, Tavani and then on up to Chesterfield and, and uh, we met the Hudson Bay boat up there in Escopee and they made arrangements for some supplies and that to go into Baker Lake that weren't going to get in there because of this uh, uh, their own ship being uh, gone on fire when a fire and sank uh, 
the captain and crew of that ship, by the way, got a, uh, got off in a small boat, and, and uh, they they managed to get back into uh, Churchill and told us what had happened. Uh, so I went on through to uh, uh, Baker Lake and and then put out a fuel cache at uh, uh, Bever uh, Beverly Lake uh, uh, to. Uh, for the use of her when we were trip when the two planes were coming along. But as I say, we had to wait for over a week, and during that week it was perfect weather. And when the other plane came along, uh, uh, we started out, and most, uh, hardly, we hadn't got very many miles, we were into snow squalls and, and bad weather. And uh, the uh, we were using a, a Weems, uh, sun compass and uh, it was quite necessary to have shots of the sun there in order to uh, get our position. Anyway we sat down on one lake in, uh, in a snow squall and during the uh, night it started to form a bit of ice and the moochers we, uh, we were quite worried about getting frozen in there right in the middle of nowhere and uh, so we took off and got out of there and uh, while the ice got uh, uh, frozen us in there. So we went on up the uh, river, followed the river down to the coast and figured that we'd be on the, uh, uh, the salt water, we'd be, uh, uh, we'd be much safer there for, and also the chance of running into habitation there and Eskimos would be much better. So that's what we did. We went along the coast, and the uh, weather was lousy, but uh, I spotted a, a, an Eskimo encampment on a, the mouth of a small river, and uh, uh, there were a couple of small tents there. And so I landed on the, in the bay, and the other plane was following me. He, he landed there beside me. And there we stayed uh, with these Eskimos. Uh, there happened to be a, a tribe of them there, probably 20 or 30 of them, and uh, that uh, were out hunting. And uh, they uh, looked after us. We built a sod hut and uh, made ourselves as comfortable as we could. And, uh, and the Eskimos helped us with food and. and uh, they looked after us if say it hadn't been for them we wouldn't be here and then it took us uh, we had to wait uh, for uh, well, we made one attempt to go over and use all the gas from uh, both airplanes in them put it in the one uh, but the day we uh, it was the day after we had arrived there and uh, <coughs> we took one of the Eskimos along with us We'd never seen an airplane before, of course, and, and uh, it, it didn't bother him a bit. And, and uh, he was pointing. Right, we knew some of the Eskimo words because of the of our uh, contact with them at our uh, our camp at Tavani. Uh, uh, anyway, they he kept pointing right in the right direction for Cambridge Bay, Victoria Island, across the straits. 
and uh, well, we knew we were, we were that was where we'd have to go was to Cambridge Bay and uh, the straits were all full of ice and it was blowing a gale and, and uh, no hope of getting across and we have enough gas to get across so I turned back and landed and they, they drew out about a pint and a half of gas I think so I got lucky to get back and uh, there we were stuck then until the straits froze over and make a long story short we, we had one one attempt which is uh, we damn near got out to sea uh, the ice break, breaking off from the shore or at least uh, from just ahead of us there we managed to get back on shore so uh, it took us about uh, 14 days pretty near to, uh, until the, uh, we got across the boat November the 3rd and uh, we walked across with the Eskimos and uh, they had three dog teams I think and uh, we had a rock the last few miles from that we had to go over on rubber ice on uh, new uh, new salt water ice and it's uh, spongy and so we were running uh, apart from each other and didn't dare stop to go through one of the Eskimo women went through but she managed to hang on and uh, her husband got uh, crept out on his belly to her and, and uh, hauled her over onto a pan of ice and frozen before and uh, she just stripped off her clothes and, and, uh, and into uh, some dry ones and we, everybody kept on going. We got in there, uh, the only casualty we had was uh, Don Goodwin who had frozen his toes, his big toes and uh, other than having uh, a touch of scurvy you know from no vegetables and that we soon got rid of that after we got there and it tied into some good food. <laughs> That's amazing. And you even had uh, trouble getting back out after you'd uh, you'd uh, finished your journey there, and you were trying. They were going to bring oh. you out to Winnipeg. You had you were snowing. Yeah, oh, it took us uh, took us a month for there to get down there. But uh, mind you, this is in the <clears throat> middle of winter there and there's very little daylight yeah. and we had uh, uh, troubles with the planes, uh, engine troubles and, and uh, they left two of them up there uh, they uh, cracked up on rough uh, landing drifts and, uh, but nobody else hurt there at all. So you lived you lived like an Eskimo then for... Oh, when we were with them. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. How, oh, yeah, how yeah, much of a yeah. shock is that in the system? Well, uh, it, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever get used to the raw fish and, uh, or, uh, or uh, uh, seal meat, uh, uh, rancid, you know. <laughs> and uh, we ate uh, ptarmigan, uh, quite a few ptarmigan we got until they disappeared. But... Uh, Oh, the, the fish, uh, if, it, if it was fresh, we only had a couple of chances at that. We had some caribou meat that they were lucky enough to get some. And uh, they were uh, the most uh, 
unselfish people that uh, you could ever run across. They not they couldn't speak our language. We couldn't speak theirs. Just a few words in that. But uh, they did. Uh, at times they were when we were actually practically starving, and we got some of their old uh, seal caches and uh, their fish that were. Uh, it's uh, they just pile rocks on it and leave it to the cache there and, and for some time. They like it. They they don't mind at all. But uh, they made us eat it. They they just uh, literally. Uh, quite insistent that you do eat it, uh, and it, it was quite a hard thing to get down. Did you? Uh, they even went without and, and, uh, and made us uh, eat. Someone they we were in short supply. They uh, they wouldn't eat. They they just made us. Yeah, not many white people do that. Did you ever have, uh, after that incident, did you ever have second thoughts about uh, this career of yours? No, not really, no, because uh, uh, things improved a lot after, uh, in the next few years, you know, the maps and the country was mapped and, and there was lots of activity, mining activity and, and other mail, air mail. It was less to, uh, uh, to keep you interested. Mm -hmm. No, uh, they, you mean as far as being afraid of uh, being just uh, Did you have second thoughts again? about safety for your life? No, I don't know. It didn't seem to uh, bother one. Just an adventure yeah. experience. That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we thought all the time we'd get out, you know, but uh, sometimes it was a little brighter than others. <laughs> so did you continue working on with uh, the uh, McAlpin? No, they, that was in, uh, in 1929 and, and uh, uh, the early 30s. It was during the uh, uh, the uh, stock, car, uh, stock market crash, you know, and, mm -hmm. and uh, They'd spent a lot of money on this uh, search, and, uh, and also uh, uh, the whole market was shot, and uh, they uh, sold out to uh, uh, Canadian Airways. Now, later on, you flew with uh, Mackenzie Air Service, and you were involved with the rescue of a Captain C.H. Roberts and his party would become icebound and uh, the circumstances surrounding this rescue was were pretty amazing because you only had three and a half hours of uh, daylight for uh, searching purposes. I'm wondering if you could tell us about that. Uh, yes, we were uh, asked to uh, go in to Letty Harbor and pick up uh, a boat crew, Captain Roberts and his uh, first mate and cook. Uh, who had been left stranded in at Letty Harbor? Uh, uh, it was a, a small Hudson Bay base plus uh, uh, mission base. Uh, they, however, were short of food, and uh, the extra three uh, bodies there to feed uh, uh, was going to make quite a hardship on them. So we. 
attempted to uh, bring them in from, uh, bring them back to uh, Great Bear Lake to the El Dorado mine there at Port Radium. We started out from there. First of all, we had uh, a radio contact with the uh, uh, two priests on uh, uh, their ship, which was also in Atleti Harbor, uh, Lady of Lourdes. Uh, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the priest there, but they could send about three or four words a minute uh, on their uh, radio set, and the uh, uh, radio uh, operator at uh, the El Dorado Mine at Great Bear Lake was able to pick them up. And we uh, got a very sketchy weather report from them, and uh, it was in, uh, I think, the early part of January. And uh, the weather looked uh, not too bad, but the daylight was down to about three and a half hours of daylight that we'd have for flying over country from the north shore of uh, Great Bear Lake to uh, uh, Letty Harbor was uh, unexplored and there was a dotted line showing a, a river uh, but uh, nothing really to go by. However we headed north uh, and uh, just about at the point of going to turn back or land and, and put the fuel, extra fuel that we had in the cabin of the aircraft. Uh, we would uh, refuel our, ourselves and uh, and try and get back to the Great Bear Lake. We couldn't see anything, any sign of Letty Harbor, but just as we were on the point of uh, coming down, I spotted in the distance a, a smoke column, and uh, it was Letty Harbor. They'd uh, put up uh, uh, some, burnt some uh, coal sacks with oil on them and, and there was no wind and it went straight up so it was just like a beacon we headed right in there and got landed there. Uh, <clears throat> after we got there uh, the, the blizzard set in that night and we were there for three days and uh, two of the days there we couldn't even see the, the airplane uh, it wasn't very far from the from our buildings but we uh, we had no problem uh, taking them out. We brought them right out to uh, through Yellowknife and, and or at least uh, Fort Smith and down to Edmonton here. That's what I find is amazing that the weather conditions that you flew in for the, and the, the equipment you had, the navigational equipment you had at the time, it's amazing uh, what you did and what you were able to do. Well, as I say before, you uh, if you got into weather uh, that you couldn't uh, uh, handle as far as flying the airplanes concerned. You sat down and, and uh, made camp and, and uh, waited out the weather. And you usually, if you're going over a new area and that, you you try to pick a day that you could get up some height where you could uh, make use of the odd large lake or so that. It would have to be on the map, or, and uh, it might not be accurate as far as the shoreline is concerned, but it would it would, uh, it would help you. 
Yeah. Uh, just uh, looking at bush piles in general, what type of, uh, uh, of camaraderie or competition was there amongst them? Uh, did you have, were there rivalries between various airlines? Oh yes, it was, uh, there was only so much business and the people hadn't got really used to uh, using uh, aircraft for freight haul and, and so on just where they they had to the mining companies and, the, and then the, the uh, stores or trading posts and that began to realize they could uh, wouldn't have to carry such large inventories that they use airplanes so there was more use of airplanes then and there more airplanes uh, and more companies and uh, uh, the pie had to be divided uh, in smaller pieces and, and there was a quite a, uh, a lot of rivalry and, and uh, however the, <coughs> the during the uh, day when you were you were fighting for business and that at night when you get to a place and they were uh, camped at the same uh, village as you were well, everything was rosy you were, you were great friends and, and uh, if one happened to break down someplace uh, and you knew about it you'd go out of your way to, to help him out uh, even uh, if you were carrying spare parts along with you if it could be any use to him you'd let him have them and if his plane happened to go through the ice and uh, someplace and uh, at say Fort Ray uh, uh, I brought in a bottle of rum there to the uh, to the pilot and engineer, and uh, they uh, enjoyed that more, and, and uh, they still talk about it some fifty years after. <laughs> so it was a it was a healthy rivalry, sir. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. There were there was nothing mean really. But Ted, you uh, flew at a time when there was a lot of uh, colorful pilots around. Do you maybe uh, give us a, a couple of reminiscences on maybe one or two of your, your favorite friends who were flying at that time? Um, you know, if you were talking about uh, unusual characters and uh, that sort of thing, you know, and uh, uh, of course there are well-known ones like Punch Dickinson, Wap May, and and, uh, and Pat Reed, and uh, I would name a few of them there that uh, you knew and uh, respected. And, and uh, uh, there were some that uh, would get into the country that weren't quite so uh, uh, I should say they're not they weren't uh, up to the standard of, the, of uh, most of the pilots and would uh, get into all sorts of trouble. Uh, they, as a rule, didn't last very long and uh, were weeded out. Uh, I can remember one chap that was flying for us and he, uh, he was delivering uh, supplies to a bunch of tent camps around west and north of Yellowknife and uh, when he'd land at these camps he'd have to uh, 
uh, probably they want to uh, move, move their tent and their, and their canoe and that over to another area. And he'd do that, and then he'd leave their supplies there, but he'd stay with them until uh, <clears throat> some of the supplies would be a, uh, a, a case of beer or a, a bottle of rum or something. Well, he, this chap would stay and have a few drinks with him. But he had uh, about six people to move during this whole uh, day that he was out. And he consumed quite a bit of liquor. And uh, he, uh, when he came back in, he couldn't remember where he'd, uh, he'd put these. Because, as I say, there were no maps. Uh, you had to sketch it in before you you'd put them. So it was quite a uh, flap then. We, uh, our agent there, uh, Don Ferris, uh, he was from Edmonton here. He uh, wired me in Edmonton to uh, come on up and as fast as I could. Uh, that he had been in trouble with uh, with uh, this pilot that uh, put uh, parties out and didn't know where they were. So. Uh, I got a hold of, we had a little uh, airplane called Brindle's Beechcraft. Uh, it's a stagger wing Beechcraft, and, uh, fast little thing. And, well, I took that up and, and uh, well, we spent three days uh, going around and landing at every tent and uh, we'd see up someplace, you know, and say, well, you know, nice day and you know, <laughs> is there anything we can do for you? And, find out who they were so they would see if they were some of the party that he had moved. And we found them all. We got the, the pilot was relieved of his job there. There, there wasn't too much room for mistake. There, there isn't too much room for mistake. No, no, there. no. Well, both uh, that got around, you see, it wouldn't be, uh, you wouldn't have much business either. Were you based most of this time out of Edmonton? Uh, yes, you know, most of that. I was wondering, um, because the, the bush pilots at that time, they seemed to have, or their exploits seemed to have such a high profile. There was the, uh, the Wap, May, Vic Horner yeah. um, you know, exploit, and, yeah. and the uh, expedition that you were involved in. They always seemed to, to catch the eye of the, of the press. Uh, yeah. And sometimes when they come back to Edmonton, there would be a lot of people out to, to see them in. Did you ever witness that where there would be lots of people at Blatchford Field uh, waiting for bush pilots? No, no, I don't think waiting for bush pilots. I might have waited for his, his uh, passengers or Just something like that. I don't think so. No, there wasn't any big celebrations no, no. or anything like that. No. Um, moving along that uh, toward the uh, later part of the 30s, you were reactivated in back to the RCAF. Was that uh, after the war had started or just before oh, the war had started? The day before. The day before the war was declared. I had a telegram up to Yellowknife and I was on my way between Yellowknife and Great Bear Lake and at that time we had radio in our aircraft and they sent a message on to me that I was to report uh, the RCAF uh, uh, right away. So uh, when I got through my trip, I came down and, and uh, uh, reported out to Vancouver. Uh, that's where I had to report to. And uh, then I spent uh, 
sometime on the west coast, but in in early in the spring of or in the early winter of uh, 1940, Punch uh, <coughs> uh, Dickens, who had uh, been put in charge of uh, what they call At Faro, Atlantic Ferry Ferrying uh, Organization, uh, owned, or run by the, the CPR. Uh, he got uh, asked for quite a number of his old, his old friends, and that that uh, he thought he could depend on, I guess. I know, but he I got a message there for uh, report to uh, to Bermuda, uh, and I was sitting up in the rain at Euculet uh, on uh, on the Vancouver Island. Uh, so I I got to. Uh, Bermuda and uh, ferried for about uh, seven months there uh, of uh, uh, flying boats from uh, Bermuda to uh, North, to Scotland, and then I <coughs> then our Air Force uh, acquired a bunch of flying boats and uh, Catalinas, and, and uh, I was dragged off uh, the, uh, the ferrying job. Put in a squadron, and right on to the end of the war, I was in active squadrons. Was it hard to go from the sort of free, spirited uh, bush pilot idea into a regimented lifestyle of the RCAF? Well, it, it it would have been, except that I was on active squadrons all the time, and uh, they were never bothered too much with, uh, uh, you know, the drill, the drill, and. Uh, and, and more or less get the job done, and uh, so that fitted in better with uh, me than I would if I'd had to go to the parade square there too often. Didn't like to march too much. No, very <laughs> not. How uh, how much of an effect did World War Two have upon the uh, the bush pilot profession? Were there major changes? There were, as we know, there yeah, was changes yeah. through navigation and things like that. That had a great effect on the bush pilot uh, after the Second World War. Yeah, I th I think that uh, they had a uh, they had to get if they wanted to fly after the war was over. Well, uh, there really wasn't uh, a lot of opportunity. Uh, the airlines didn't take long to f fill up and that. And so, if you get some experience and uh, get a job, you'd have to go back in the bush. But uh, uh, it's certainly a lot different than the Air Force life, and uh, some uh, some st stayed with it. Quite a number of them stayed with it. Uh, others who couldn't take it, uh, they'd have to get back at the hotel at night, you know, instead of camping out in the bush and waiting for the weather to clear up. Uh, like that, and they're handling their own freight, and so on. But uh, basically, it was the same work uh, as it was before, except that you had better conditions to uh, better aids, and, uh, and they got onto uh, building airstrips uh, uh, so as to get away from the freeze-up, break-up periods, mm -hmm. uh, having to switch from floats to uh, skis. <coughs> Did you go back uh, to the bush after the after bush piloting after the Second World War? Uh, yes, uh, 
pretty much. I went back on uh, aerial photography. I'd, I'd had some experience in aerial photography with Mackenzie Air Service. And so uh, I uh, did quite a lot of uh, aerial uh, photography uh, for the Department of uh, Agriculture in Ottawa uh, with Mackenzie Air Service. And uh, <clears throat> and then I went into that business myself. I, I, uh, my uh, photographer uh, and I formed a company of our own, and we we, we uh, used a, a war surplus air, airplanes, uh, uh, Anson, and uh, we did that for a few years, and and then uh, we got into the high altitude. Uh, um, Photography, say from 30, 35,000 feet. Well, <clears throat> Fred was about 10 years older than I was, and I was supposed to be pretty old then, too. And uh, uh, we just thought it was going to be a bit much for us to handle. So we sold our equipment out and got out of there. It was then after that that I went back into the, uh, some of the bush work. And, and uh, I, I did uh, about nine years with uh, Pacific Western uh, looking after their uh, VFR operation and, and uh, on the due line and, and uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, so I did quite a bit of bush flying after that. When was the last time you, you flew? Oh, uh, about, see, about five, uh, about five years ago now. You must miss it. Well, yes, yeah, yeah but uh, you, I get a, I get a chance to go up there fairly, uh, fairly often with some of my old pals that are that used to work for me. And, uh, they're flying still, and they give me a call and tell me to come on. And they're going up to Fort Nelson or someplace and, uh, and back into the some drilling. Is Reagan going oh, on to come? Sure, away I go. So I do get uh, a chance to go go again once in a while. I know this might be an unfair question, but would you remember what your best uh, job was flying? What did you enjoy doing the most? Is there any one that stood out in your mind? I think it was with uh, Mackenzie Air Service, and uh, we acquired a, a, a Malanka air cruiser, a great big new type airplane, and uh, I was very fond of it. I still think it was the best bush airplane that uh, ever went in the north. It was faster than other with other aircraft and carried big load. Good in the winter and good on floats in the summer, and uh, I used to enjoy the runs there. I had, <coughs> had some very nice trips with it with uh, Colonel ha uh, Harry Snyder, who used to be the president of El Dorado, uh, El Dorado Mines, and he was a great hunter, and uh, he had me up in the Mahani. Uh, area there about three summers in a row um, uh, in the fall they're hunting 
sheep and goat and grizzly and everything. And he'd take me along. And he also had a muskox expedition that uh, was doing it for the government, uh, mostly for himself, I think. But uh, <coughs> he uh, got samples of uh, muskox and, and uh, uh, the, uh, the museum in Ottawa had them. But uh, I got into a lot of uh, nice flying that uh, I enjoyed. It was the type of job you liked. Right, yeah. How many miles an hour did you end up flying? Oh, in that particular airplane, we'd do about 130. Uh, and most of the airplanes would be around 100. What was the, uh, what was the total uh, number of uh, flying hours that you have to your record? Well, uh, the last few years, anyway, at least the last number of years, I didn't keep track of it. I, uh, I had around 25,000, somewhere around there. Huh. <laughs> uh, uh, you've had a number of honors directed your way. You've had a lake named after you up in the Lesser Slave Lake District. You've been inducted into the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame. And you even have a, an airplane named after you in the uh, Ward Air Fleet. Now, um, with this type of attention being paid toward you and indirectly toward Bush pilots, do you think uh, there's enough of present-day uh, society? Is, is there enough attention being paid toward the exploits of the Bush pilots, or do you think maybe uh, we're forgetting that? I think until the last few years there, we, we certainly uh, neglected it. Uh, Keeping having a history of uh, uh, the flying of uh, uh, in the bush area, at least in the in the northern areas, and that um, we have, however, uh, the Canada's Aviation Hall of Fame, which uh, uh, directs uh, uh, the collecting of of information and and. Uh, History of uh, early, early flying, uh, uh, plus the ones that are involved in the uh, in the uh, manufacture and and, uh, and the organization of aviation. That it uh, it's uh, trying to uh, uh, develop a museum uh, with. Uh, that in mind there of collecting uh, people instead of just uh, uh, say artifacts and that and they, but they are having a considerable difficulty in in financing uh, such a project uh, so far they've been going on without uh, government aid but uh, it uh, it's really uh, uh, something that should be uh, looked after and not let go by the board for uh, future generations. And that uh, certainly uh, will certainly benefit by the, the collection of this uh, information.
this is the this is the project that you're involved in now, is that it? Yes, I, I, I'm one of the directors, uh, uh, and uh, they've made me a, or I'm the treasurer as well, which uh, I don't know, great honor, I don't think, but it's uh, uh, it, we take a, we take in we have a nominating committee and anybody can belong that meets the criteria of the uh, of the uh, uh, the hall and uh, so far they've they've had a hundred about a hundred and forty or something like that uh, of members. Uh, quite a number of them deceased, but uh, uh, they're getting uh, more in all the time. Uh, usually, trying to get three in a, in a year, and uh, our new quarters uh, uh, on uh, the in the convention center there really well worth uh, looking at. Well, we wish you. Uh all the best in your, in your ventures in the future, and, and thank you very much for coming in. Well, thank you very much for having me. <laughs> this material is a digitized audio recording from the holdings of the City of Edmonton archives. For more information regarding the recording, please contact us by email at cms.archives at edmonton.ca, by phone at 780-496-8711, or on our online catalog at cityarchives.edmonton.ca.